Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to the second season of Book Tour. In this episode, I return to my hometown of Memphis. My guests include historian Hampton Sides and booksellers Corey Messler and Matt Crow. The event was held at the auditorium at Christian Brothers University and was co-sponsored by Burks and Novel Bookstore. Thanks for listening. Let's start the show. Good evening, everybody. My name is John Smorelli. I'm service president of Christian Brothers University. It's a wonderful opportunity to welcome you to this very, very, very special event. We're very honored at CBU to, to partner with, with two locally owned and independent bookstores, Burke's Bookstore and Novel Books. So we ask you to continue to patronize these uh, bookstores. We at CBU are very, very proud to co-sponsor this event, and I want to give credit to our Memphis Reads program and uh, Dr. Karen Golightly in our Modern Languages Department. It's an incredible uh, program. Every year we have a Memphis Reads and where we bring an, an author in and what could be better here. I'm going to keep my introductions very, very brief because you don't want to hear me, you want to hear our, our two wonderful authors. Uh, Hampton Sides, native of Memphis, Yale graduate. He's the editor of, uh, for Outside and frequent contributor to National Geographic and other magazines. His journalistic work has been twice nominated for National Magazine Awards for feature writing. He's the author of best-selling histories, uh, a number of them, Ghost Soldiers, Blood and Thunder, just to name a few. We also want to warmly welcome, okay, let me just, the, the book is also, let me just give one, one, more, one more plug for Hampton. The book is also the basis for the acclaimed documentary, Roads to Memphis, uh, on the PBS show, The American Experience, which Hampton served as historical consultant. Welcome, Hampton. John Grisham. Long before his name became synonymous with modern legal thriller, he is working 60 to 70 hours a week in small South Haven, Mississippi law practice, squeezing in time before going to the office during courtroom recesses to work on his hobby, writing his first novel. Born February 8, 1955 in Jonesboro, Arkansas, to a construction worker and homemaker, John Grisham, as a child, dreamed of being a professional baseball player. Go figure. Realizing he didn't have the right stuff for a pro career, he shifted gears and majored in accounting in Mississippi State University. After graduating from law this is CBU, remember that. <laughs> After graduating from law school at Ole Miss in 1981, no more applause also, he went on to practice law for nearly a decade in South Haven, specializing in criminal defense and personal injury litigations. In 1983, he was elected to the State House of Representatives and served till 1990. He is the author of 31 novels, one work of nonfiction, a collection of short stories, and six novels for young readers. There are currently over 300 million copies of John Grisham books in print worldwide, and which have been translated into 40 plus languages. Nine of his novels have been turned into film. What an awesome performance. So let me just stop talking and welcome our wonderful panel, and uh, we, we will begin our project. You're on. Thank you, Mr. Perez. Uh, happy to be here at CBU. When I was a kid, it was CBC. Uh, it's a long time ago. And I'm on a book tour for uh, Rooster Bar, which came out Tuesday. Now available in fine bookstores everywhere and um, in hardback and audio. And I suppose you could find the ebook version somewhere in the world. Um, and I'm traveling around to uh, seven 
uh, cities with this. Is your phone on, Corey? Would you turn it off? That's some music. Ah. Just turn it off, Corey. Okay. We've been we've been bitching for about 25 years to each other because he owns Burke's Bookstore, and every time I go there, it's you know it's it, it's a challenge to get through the afternoon. Back in back in uh, June, I published a book called Camino Island, um, and for the first time, thank you. For the first time in 25 years, I went on an author tour, and I went to 13 uh, bookstores in 13 towns and had a ball. I, I love to go to independent bookstores and kind of uh, and then see them and hang out and hang out with the booksellers and meet some of the fans. And it's the first time I'd done it in a long time, and it was very gratifying. And we decided to do a podcast, and I wasn't sure what a podcast was until they, they sent me a podcast. And I listened to it, and I said, this will be fun after each book signing to invite local writers in the area to come like this and sit down with me and the booksellers and have a conversation. Talk about writing and reading and book selling and whatever you want to talk about. And that's what we're doing. There's no script tonight. Nothing is planned. You can't, we can't screw up because there's no way to screw it up. There's nothing planned. And I, I, I had many, for many years, even more years than I've realized until about an hour ago, I've been enjoying um, Hampton's books. Uh, I thought the first thing I read was Ghost Soldiers. As it turns out, he, uh, he wrote for Memphis Magazine years before, and I had written, I read something he wrote 30 years ago and thoroughly enjoyed it. But his books have always been um, informative and compelling, and I love great storytelling. And this guy is one of the best. And I, I wanted to meet him, and I knew he was from here, my neck of the woods, and so Hampton's here. So glad to have you. One thing we're doing is also showcasing independent bookstores. And in 1991, when I published A Time to Kill, um, most of the stores uh, did, not have, uh, did not have time for, you know, an unknown writer with a book nobody had heard of, published by a company no one had heard of, and it was tough getting in bookstores. And there were a handful of stores in the Mid-South area uh, that uh, supported me uh, way back then. And a few years later, well, 18 months later, 17 months later, uh, when the firm came out, uh, it was a different story. And I began signing at Burke's Bookstore, uh, at, at that time owned by Fred and Harriet Beeson. But Corey and, Cheryl were, Corey and Cheryl ran the place. We all know them. They've been around for a long time. And I love the old bookstore, and I, 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 we began having these... Um, marathon signings at Burke's. Uh, they would last for, uh, a few folks were there, I, I, I still want to thank you for uh, showing up, but I'm, I want to choke you for showing up because we, <laughs> we signed for 15 hours one day and uh, we, we thought we were crazy. That was firm, Pelican Brief client. Chamber was probably the, the day we broke, that was the straw that it broke our back. We said we can't do 15 hours every time. But it was Memphis, it was my backyard and a lot of folks were showing up, and so for years I would come back and sign, still at Burke's, Square Books in Oxford, Lemuria and Jackson, the bookstore in Blyville, Reeds and Tupelo, and then uh, later Turnrow Books in Greenwood, and that was kind of my little uh, private book tour, but I've always tried to support the independents. In this market, it's very difficult uh, to, um, to survive as a bookseller, but 
Burks has been fighting the good fight for a long time, and a, a big hand for Corey and Cheryl Messler for Burksman. Uh, some months back, I got a I got a frantic email from John Virgos, and he said, well, "You know, we're losing our bookstore. We're losing um, our last big uh, community bookstore. And and can you help us?" And I said, "Well, <laughs> first of all, I'm not investing. Okay, I, I, I'm, I've lost money in everything else. I'm not going to lose money in a bookstore." Um, and I said, "Why don't you talk to Richard Holworth uh, at Square Books and John Evans at Lemuria? Those guys have been doing it for 35 years. They know everything. They're successful." And John did, and John uh, and others um, scrambled and put together uh, a very enthusiastic and and not desperate, but a, a determined effort to to uh, to save the bookstore. And they've been successful. And novel opened six weeks ago. About two months ago. Two, two months ago, and there were 23 or 24 investors who came together and. Um, put up the money and opened a beautiful bookstore. I went there today for the first time and uh, signed a, a bunch of books and enjoyed the, the, the staff and enjoyed the setting. And uh, it's, it's really remarkable. And John Virgos in one of his emails said, you know, if we lose our big community-based bookstore, it's, the town's not gonna be the same, the same, so we gotta have it. So a big, if you hadn't been to Novel, you, you gotta go, you gotta support it, but a big hand for the folks at Novel Bookstore. So for the next uh, hour or so, we're going to talk and ask each other questions, and I want to encourage you guys, as you, yeah, you too, um, to if you have questions that you want to ask us about book selling, we're going to ask you questions about that, but also about writing and the process and publishing, and if we have time at the end, we'll be happy to open it up um, for questions from the floor. So. Um, Hampton, my first question to you, in, in, in view of the fact it takes so long between books, um, that's kind of a joke. I mean, it takes him five years, okay? Uh, what, what are you working on now? Yeah, I, I need some uh, tips on how to, to be a little more uh, prolific. Um, write fiction and not fiction, okay? You, <laughs> um, working on a book now that is turned out to be very current. I didn't intend it this way, but it's a book set in North Korea in 1950 uh, when the United States uh, was pushing towards the Yalu and uh, a, a group of Marines, the 1st Marine Division, uh, got itself trapped in the mountains uh, and got surrounded 10 to 1 by 100,000 Chinese. In North Korea? In North Korea, in the dead of winter, 20 below zero. And uh, they had to figure out a way to get, their, get themselves out of this trap. And um, the story got a lot current, a lot more current in the last couple of uh, months, um, and uh, I, I'm trying to outrun. I feel like I'm trying to outrun news events right now uh, to get this thing published. It's going to come out sometime uh, in uh, October of next year, so look for it. Uh, tentative, the tentative title is the Reservoir. Uh, it's, it's the Battle of Chosen Reservoir. That's like um, one of my titles, the something. You yeah, know? Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really struggle with titles, obviously, but you know. The firm, the appeal, is pretty dull stuff. The brief, know? yeah. But Ghost Soldiers was a great title, Blood, Blood and Thunder, and yeah. um, 
hellhound on his trail or tail or what's on. That was kind of a mouthful. Hellhound, uh, that, one, that one was a tactical error um, I've, I've, uh, in terms of the title. I like the title. It's from an old blues lyric, you know, from Robert Johnson, Hellhound on my trail. But I have been introduced all the time up on stage uh, in so many different ways on, uh, having to do with that book. Like uh, one time I was literally introduced as the author of Hellbound for Some Tail. Uh, so it, it, was not, it was not good. It was not good. Uh, so maybe... Which could have been appropriate at one point in your life before. Yeah, that's true. Uh, my wife's right here, so I got to be careful. Yeah, yeah and, and Anne's here, so let's, let's clean it up already, okay? So a, a question I have for you, I mean, you, you, your topics are, are so diverse. When I, I love Ghost Soldiers, and I love Blood and Thunder, the Kit Carson story, and I love the James Earl Ray story. You, you, you kind of bounce all over the place. Um, I hate the question. Every writer hates the question, where do you get your ideas? You know, that's a question we always get. Uh, but for you, is how do you, how do you pick a topic that you've got to spend four or five years researching, you know, extensively, and and hopefully turn that into a compelling story? How do you go about choosing those topics? Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it every book is a little bit different, um, but with every book, there is a process that's both kind of rational and makes a lot of sort of sense. And then there's a, a part of the process that is irrational. Uh, the, the rational part is just simply, is this book a book that has good characters, good plot, good setting, all those kinds of char characteristics that any good story has to have? And that's true with all your novels as well. But um, the irrational part of it is like, well, wait a minute, I got to live with this thing for five years. If I don't have that funny feeling, that feeling of like the hair standing up on the back of my neck, uh, that feeling of being in love with this thing um, early on, then how am I going to maintain that feeling for four or five years as I do the research? And because uh, I spent a lot of time in the archives, I spent a lot of time traveling to these battlefields and these different locations. And, uh, it, it, you know, you're going to lose that feeling at times. You know, during those four or five years, you know, that funny feeling goes away. Do you enjoy away. the research? Uh, do, uh, do you say that again? Do you enjoy the research? I love the research. I mean, See, I hate the, the research. Yeah, okay. I mean, I just... Uh, well, I'll uh, do the research, you write the books, well, and we'll be I, a team. I, I just... I, didn't, <laughs> I learned to hate research in law school. I mean, yeah. I, I, I was always... Yeah. I tried to avoid it when I was a lawyer, and... Um, and <laughs> did a my father, good, my did father a was a law job. professor. The, well, the... Um, the uh, the part of the research that's fun is when you get to go places and see things and interview people and, you know, I've been to a lot of prisons and that's always fascinating. Uh, <laughs> it's depressing, but, you know, you, you find good stories there. I really, I really dislike the, uh, the legal research that I have to do with, with certain books, but I cannot imagine. I wrote one nonfiction book. The, the Innocent Man came out 10 years ago and I was in way over my head. At one point I was staring at 10,000 documents of prison records for this guy. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I didn't ask for this. Yes, I did, too. I mean, I'd signed up for it. And so I started hiring research assistants to do all the work. But I can't imagine researching diligently for four years and having all this tons of research and data and then trying to weave that into a, comparative, a compelling narrative. That's it's hard at times. And uh, you know, one time when one of my boys, uh, I have three boys, one of them came to work one day and watched me work. and. Uh, you know, I was picking up a document and uh, putting the document down, and then picking up maybe another document, 
put it down. He was watching me, you know, I think he was hoping his dad was an astronaut or a fireman or something. And, and, and then at some point he just said, Dad, is it always like this? And, and so needless to say, none of my three boys are, are writers. Um, it, it is hard work, but uh, you know, truly, sitting in archives, I love, I love the smell of all these old diaries and you know, people in the old days used to write beautifully. You know, now it's, you know, it would be a text or something. Uh, and I love you know, that feeling of connection with history that way. When you, when you go to the National Archives or, or you go to um, anywhere where the, these relics are stored, um, that's a part of the joy of, of doing these books. So you've, you've, your three books, the fourth one comes out next year, supposedly. Obviously, your publisher does not give you a deadline because you take so long. But I mean, do you, do you see, like, the, you're, you're, you're fairly young. I mean, do you see this going on for a number of years? This is your plan? Or do you want to switch and write poetry? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, if I was smart, I would get into something different, maybe a little porn or something. But um, no, I said I, poetry, not porn. Okay. Uh, I, I love it. I, you know, this, the weird thing about it is, is that even though there is a masochistic side to this kind of work, uh, which, is, which is all the years of, of sort of digesting the research, it's really not doing the research that's hard. It's the digesting, figuring it out, like all these, just trying to reconcile all these different contradictions in the, in the historical record. That's really what takes the time, and that's the, really the hard part. Um, I love... Uh, writing. I love the revision process. Um, I do all my writing uh, in a coffee shop. I found that I have to leave the house. I go to this coffee shop in Santa Fe. One time I was actually, I became such a part of the furniture uh, that they forgot I was in there. And Most writers go to bars, okay, yeah. and he goes to coffee shops. And uh, I like to get highly caffeinated and, um, and so they forgot I was in there and I was over there by the ferns and they just forgot about me and they locked up the shop. And <laughs> You know, I, I pulled an all-nighter in a coffee shop. So, so that's kind of the weird MO. I think all writers have to figure out some way to get... I'm curious, where, where do you write? How do you, how do you... You don't write in coffee shops. Everyone knows you. You're too famous. I don't famous. go to coffee shops to write. No, uh, I have a little office in a separate building behind the house, and uh, I've been there for 20 years. And I go over every morning at um, 7 o'clock with the same cup and the same coffee and fresh coffee and uh, <laughs> sit in the same chair with the same quilt and uh, it's dark it's it's a desktop computer but there's no phone no fax no internet no music and um, it's wonderful and I and, and the first I, I love the hours from 7 to 10 in the morning when things are still quiet and I'll go back to the house for more coffee or you know back and forth to stretch my legs but that's a great day right there. And I'll work till um, 11, sometimes 12. You know, once you write for about four hours, your brain's pretty well mush. And um, a good day is uh, 1,000 words. A really good day is 2,000 words. A slow day is 500 words. But, I mean, there's no such thing as a day off. Uh, I'll, start, I'll start in January and give myself six months, and, and it's five days a week. You, every day? Well, I mean, I spend two or three years where I don't write a single word. I believe that, you know? because look at I mean, look at it. Um, because I'm traveling and I'm going to places, I'm reading all these books about the Korean War currently, but um, man, the, the Martin Luther King story, um, 
wrote you know about the assassination there's so much literature on the king assassination that nearly gave me an aneurysm just kind of you know processing it all and and then of course the conspiracy theories and everything else so yeah uh, there, there's two or three years where i'm not writing at all and i know that it's customarily said that a writer should write something every day but uh i, I literally go years without writing and then I write like a bat out of hell because, you know, my, my editor says it's time. It's code blue. You know, it's time. It's time to write. And uh, I, I, because I came out of a magazine background, I, I think I kind of enjoy deadlines. And uh, I do pretty well under that kind of uh, pressure. I kind of write like as if I'm still writing for, for, for a magazine. Yeah. So, uh, Corey, you've published eight books, eight novels? Yes. Do you write every day? <laughs> I do write. I do write every day. Um, Sometime during my 40s, I learned discipline, and I started going to bed early. I'd get up between 5 and 6 every morning. Even when I was working, which I don't work as much anymore, that gave me hours to work. And so all of my books are early morning books. But I have a, qu I have a question. Can I ask a question of both of you? That's why you're here, Corey. Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the, the, uh, the differences are that... that Hampton writes nonfiction, you write fiction. I don't know if Hampton's ever tried a novel. You tried the nonfiction and didn't like it. And differences in the style you're writing remind me of what uh, Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, when they met, uh, Bob Dylan asked Leonard Cohen about a song that he particularly liked of his and said, how long did that take you? And Leonard Cohen said, that one took about two years. And Leonard said, I really love something else of yours. How long did that take you? And Bob said, 15 minutes. So I, th I think you're the 15 minutes and you're the... But here's the similarity... I'm Bob Dylan and you're Leonard Cohen. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's a nice analogy. Come I'm, on. I'm, I'm flattered. Run yeah. with it. Bob's alive. <laughs> Me too. Here, here's, here's what something Hampton said uh, triggered this in my head is that you're both looking for characters. And one of the strengths of John's book, I'm sure you've all read all of them like I have, uh, it, of course he's a plotter. He's maybe the best plotter in fiction. Um, but his characters, there's always a character that's so, I can still picture Darby Shaw, okay? You obviously have to use real people, but you said you go in search of a character and a narrative, and that's, I'd like to talk about that similarity, the fact that the character, to me, a book is character-driven. So with, with, with Blood and Thunder, did you start with Kit Carson? Not exactly, not exactly, but I'm always looking for characters, and, and I think that it, it really is, um, this kind of history that I do is kind of a red-headed stepchild of, of history. You know, it's not academic history. Uh, academic historians tend to take a dim view of it. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, you're looking for story, you're looking for character and, and, and embedded somewhere in history. And uh, it's always bothered me that I work in a profession that has a negative uh, in front of it. Like, it's the only one I can think of. Like, you know, Derek Jeter is a non-basketball player. You know, like, who, why, why is it called non-fiction anyway? Shouldn't it be the opposite? You know, it basically, it's called non-fiction because it assumes, I think, that lying and making shit up is the... <laughs> is the default position of human nature, you know? So, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know, I'm digressing here, but I think, you know, it should you, be called you, like, you sound somewhat troubled by this. 
Are you in therapy? I mean, are you trying yeah, to yeah. see? That's what this is all about. No. Um, let's, let's get it out. Come on, let's get it out. So you're looking for character. You're looking for plot. You're looking for some kind of story. Um, I don't write about topics. I don't, write, you know, like I wouldn't write about something like Jacksonian democracy or something. But I could see writing about Jackson. Um, and you'll get Jacksonian democracy if you, you know, get into Jackson. So I think it is really important with narrative history to have very strong characters that you care about, that you follow, that have a kind of a arc to their life, uh, and, and that the story have some kind of uh, discipline to it. You know, it's not just sprawling everywhere. It does have a clear ending. It has a very clear beginning. So I think, at least with my stuff, that's what I'm looking for. I, I think with your stories, plot is, is really even more important than character, isn't it? It's, it's sort of both, I guess. To me, plot is far more important than character. Uh, I don't start unless I have the plot, and the plot goes back to the story, and the story is something that um, I'm always looking for, and it's there every day in the headlines. It's there every day in the newspapers. I write about stuff. The current book, The Rooster Bar, is about stu the student debt crisis, which is an enormous crisis in this country. Uh, it's about uh, that issue, and I'm, I'm really troubled by the... Um, Opioid crisis. There's some legal liability there somewhere. I'm not sure where. Don't have the story yet. Uh, Is that I'm, your next one? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, 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 I'll start in January, and I'm not writing now. Uh, but I'm at this time of the year. I'm always kicking around a couple of ideas for the next. Um, I've got two or three, and and I'm I've been uh, you know working with those ideas for. Some a long time, some not so long. But in January, I'll pick the best idea and run with it and, um, and, and publish it a year from now. Um, so that's, that's kind of my schedule. But I, I tend to write more about issues, legal issues. And I'm still, um, I get worked up more now over injustice and social injustice and criminal injustice and penal injustice than I did 20 years ago. I mean, the, the, the problems are uh, even greater and I am extremely frustrated because we have all these things wrong with our systems that we could easily fix. Not, not easily, but we could fix them. And we could save a lot of money, and we could save a lot of human suffering if we wouldn't convict innocent people. And we, you know, if we would just clean up the mess we've made uh, with our criminal justice system, and that's where my interest is all the time. I mean, I'm just always, that's where I live because I'm a lawyer. And, and do, you, do you ever stop and think about the injustice, though, that you, you personally commit against trees everywhere? <laughs> By ha publishing all these popular books? Forests Tree, everywhere trees, are leveled. Trees are America's renewable resource, okay? We, we can always print more trees. Half my books are now sold as e-books. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to bring that up. That's a terrible idea. So a question for you. What made you decide to invest in a bookstore? I mean, you're, you're really bucking the trend, buddy, because, you know, we, in the past 15 years, we've lost 3,000 bookstores. We lost 700 one day with borders. Uh, Barnes & Noble is, uh, they've cut some stores. When I started signing the firm in 1991, I signed at, I signed at Burke's. I signed at two or three other small independent stores in town. They're long gone. And, and then when your store closed, there was Burks, and, and no, nobody else was staying. So you know, you're really bucking the trend. Well, why'd you do this? Everybody needs a good fool's errand from time to time. 
I know the question cannot be answered. I'm just putting you on the spot. No, it does. Um, well, John Vergus, uh, you know, who wanted to be here tonight, and he was out of town, so he couldn't be. Um, his position was that a city of this scale needed a substantial bookstore to anchor book culture. Um, and the investor group felt the same way. Um, I think that uh, printed words uh, will remain meaningful to a segment of the population at infinitum. Um, and so despite the fact that there has been considerable attrition in bookstores across the country, that uh, we're doing well so far, and I think we'll continue to. Um, you don't get um, events like this through other distribution points for books. Um, and so it's more than a box uh, of niche retail. It's really a platform for uh, culture um, and a culture that civilizes all of us that is needed. And, you know, to your point uh, regarding issues, and to yours regarding key people uh, in, in history who have made a difference uh, in the world we live in, uh, without that element to support the culture, we all lose something. Well, can, can I say something, Jeff? Just yes. I, I agree 100% with what he just said. Um, I will put this uh, note, footnote to what John said. When all the giants died, when all the Barnes and Noble started closings and the borders, what happened was some smart folks said, you can do that on a slightly smaller scale. And you had people like Ann Patchett in Nashville, when their Davis kid closed, open a store that's, from all accounts, booming, she's had to expand. So I think there is a hunger for the printed word, thank you all. <laughs> because yeah. printed books, yes, pr printed books are not going to die because they're a perfect object. They're, they're a perfect object and they're not going to be bettered. And it, it is important, it was important for us at Burks that Novel open because we're not that kind of store and Memphis needed that kind of store. And I think there's a place in every, especially a city this size, in every city for a bookstore like, like that. Thank you. And Along those same lines, I've known Corey and Cheryl for uh, 26 years, and we spent a lot of fun moments together uh, signing books and uh, talking about books. And when I, when I said, uh, I, you know, I'm publishing in October, and I'll be in Memphis uh, for an event, and, um, you know, with, be like old times' sake, Corey and Cheryl said, let's include the new guys. Let's include novel. So... so Hampton, have you been tempted to buy a bookstore? No, never, never. It's kind of the trend among authors, you know that. Yeah, I know, like Ann Patchett. Ann yeah. Patchett. No, I don't think so. It's not my cup of tea. I'm not a business person at all. I, I would be a horrible failure at it, I think. But, but I, it's a noble, it'd be a noble failure, I guess. It's, um, it's retail. It's, it's, you know, it's 24-7, not 24-7, yeah, but seven days a week. It's got to be your lifeblood. It's got to be something yeah. that you do with yeah, yeah, every not, fiber I'm, of your being. I'm not going to do it. Any movie talk? Um, movie talk. Uh, well, this, uh, uh, my Martin Luther King book, um, uh, Hellhound on His Trail, uh, despite the fact that it's a difficult title for some people to pronounce, is, um, yeah, is moving forward as a, as a feature film. Um, and um, 
Molly Smith, Fred Smith's daughter, who has a company yeah. called Black Label Media, is uh, financing it. And uh, there's a really interesting young writer-director named Scott Cooper who is writing the script. Uh, he, he did Black Mass, a movie called Black Mass recently. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, they're talking about starting to film it in April, which would be the 50th anniversary, of course, of the King assassination. And uh, we'll see if it happens. I, in Hollywood, you never believe it until you're watching, you know, the, eating popcorn and watching this, the credits scroll up. Um, you've watched a few times, though, so it's, been, uh, it's worked for you. You but never believe it in Hollywood until they start filming, uh, because at that point, they're spending some serious money. Yeah, right. And um, I've been through, uh, I have not had a movie made in 15 years, and, and it's not because we haven't tried. Uh, but if you go back, almost 25 years ago to the first several firm, Pelican Brief, Client, uh, Chamber, which was not a good movie, but Rainmaker and Runaway Jury and the, the Time to Kill. Those were um, big Hollywood movies with big cast, big budgets, big uh, domestic and foreign box office grosses, and, <laughs> and everybody made money. I mean, it was, those were big movies. And, and they were made quickly after the books were published. And for some reason, we can't convince Hollywood that that model should work today. And we just can't do it. Hollywood doesn't make smart adult dramas. They're making Spider-Man 5. And, 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 the, and the action films, that's what they think about. And, and you can't get financing for it to put together a movie. And after a while, we just kind of stopped trying. You know? If you could come up with like action figures or Halloween costumes that would go with... <laughs> One of your films, it'd probably be more merchantable. We've actually thought about that, you know, Super Lawyer and things like that, but it's just... <laughs> wonder, wonder Lawyer. Uh, Tort-wielding uh, Yeah, it's just ass. not going to work. Well, I so, but I think, that, you know, the smart stuff that, that is getting made, more and more and more, the smart stuff is on television. It's, it's streaming. It's, it's being done in miniseries, in limited series. And, uh, you know, maybe that's what needs to happen. You, you know, write something that could kind of work for, in that, in that, in that sort of format, maybe in a, a trilogy or something. Because uh, I, think, I think that's really where the smart and interesting production work is all happening. All the talent's going to te television. All the, all the money's going to television. All the talent's there. Uh, the, the actors, the writers, the directors, it's all television now. Okay, but also that means that there are over 400 TV series being developed right now. And we have two or three of those. They have not started filming, so I don't believe it until they start filming. Uh, uh, my book, The Innocent Man, nonfiction, is a Netflix, going to be a Netflix series, uh, six-part series, I think two hours per episode, uh, that's almost finished. So they filmed it. That, that's going to that's gonna really happen, and I'm excited about that. Uh, my agent goes to Hollywood once or twice a year to make the rounds, to talk to everybody, and for years he would go to the studios. Now he doesn't bother with the studios. It's Netflix, Amazon, Google, even Facebook. That, that's where the money, they have all the money. I think Net, Netflix wants to spend, you know, eight zillion bucks this year with new content. And so that's where all the action is. Truthfully, I don't understand that world. I don't make movies. I don't want to learn how to make movies. And uh, I'm just, I've learned that one thing I can do is go write the next story and publish it like Rooster Bar, and it came out Tuesday, and the phone will ring off the wall for the next two weeks, then it'll stop ringing, and then, it'll, you know, it'll go away. 
And if, if one, you know, maybe two years from now, somebody will read the book and say, hey, I'd like to do a movie or a TV series, then we'll, we'll talk to them. But you can't, I can't do anything today to make that movie or TV series work. If I gave the film rights away, which I'm not going to do, if, if I wrote the screenplay for free, which I'm not going to do, but I, mean, I, can't, I can't force anything to get filmed. And once I you know, realized that years ago, I said, That's, this is not my world. It's right. just too frustrating. Right. Right. So. I say a little something to uh, John and I were talking about this earlier today. I had a very minor brush with someone interested in filming one of my novels. And stupidly, I decided to be involved in it, in the process. And it was, it was so painful, I, I had to lie down for about six <laughs> weeks. But I, I remembered afterwards, I remembered too late what John told me long ago when they were making every one of his books was becoming a movie. He said, tell him, give me a check, don't call me again. That's what Stephen King told me many years ago. He said, well, he, said, he, he, said he said, there are two groups of writers, um, those who don't deal with Hollywood for whatever reason. It's a very small group. <laughs> um, the second group consists of those of us who do. And if you're in the second group, a couple of rules, uh, get all your money up front, um, kiss it goodbye, and expect it to be something different. And if you don't like that, go join the first group. Uh, because that's, that's good advice. So or I think it was Hemingway who said you're supposed to drive to the Nevada-California border at midnight and take out your manuscript and hurl it over the border. And they take out their manuscript, uh, their money and hurl it over the border. You turn, turn around and you, and you go your separate ways. Uh, but probably a smart way to do it. Probably a smart way to do it. One of, one of our American writers, and I wish I could remember which, would make a better story, said in talking about his books being transferred to film, he's... He said he couldn't care about it because the plot is what they take out to make the movie. <laughs> so, in other words, he, this is this organic thing that he worked with for years and with the character and everything, they extracted the plot and made a movie. Well, Corey, I, you know, I can't say that because uh, I was here in 1992 when they filmed The Firm, and, and it was the first uh, film, and it was a lot of fun. Memphis was, you know, we... We were all here, and we enjoyed it immensely. Um, and when I saw the movie, uh, I didn't hang out much on the set because, you know, there's nothing in the world more boring than watching a movie being filmed. You just sit there in, in pure tedium for days, and you realize how it ever gets done. So we didn't hang out. So we, we, they invited us to see the, the film for the first time at a fancy black tie fundraiser in New York City. And we're sitting there with 5,000 of our closest friends. Everybody's wearing tuxedos, and I'm watching uh, the firm on the big screen. And it was a big moment. I mean, it was really important to me and to Renee. And we got to the end of it, and I'm thinking, who the hell wrote that? That's not my, that's not, that's not my story. I didn't write that. But, but the excitement of being there outweighed the reservations I had about uh, the, the movie itself. I came back, the client was here, and, and Joel Schumacher did that, and it was a lot of fun, Susan Sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, but the one I really enjoyed was uh, Rainmaker, because Francis Ford Coppola uh, loves writers, and he, he wanted me, for some reason, here all the time on the set just to sip cappuccino with him and watch him direct the movie. 
And we, when we got here uh, to start, we were some old warehouse in downtown Memphis, and he, he, he believed in rehearsing, and he believed in a, a, a uh, what do they call it, a complete read-through of the script with the entire cast. And I'm in the room with John Voigt and Danny DeVito and Matt Damon and Claire Danes and the whole cast, and DeVito is smoking a black cigar about that long, and there's, there are no windows open. It's 1975. You could, sm I guess, smoke back then. Matt Damon was terrified about his southern accent. He kept listening to me and said, how do you do that? I said, well, yeah. I said, what? I don't have an accent. What accent? And I said, I said Matt, the, the thing, you cannot fake a southern accent. It, it cannot be done, so don't do it. Just be yourself. He said, seriously, I don't need one? I said, Matt, just, you know, who am I? Just don't try it. You can't do it. We can spot them a fake a mile away, okay? It, and we hate it. It sounds awful to us when somebody fakes it. You're in Memphis, but you know, not everybody in Memphis is from here, so just be yourself. And he, and he was greatly relieved. And we did the entire read-through of the script. DeVito uh, does not believe in following a script. He, he wants to ad-lib everything, and, and it, it just got hilarious. And Copeland would yell at him, and he would yell back, and we we're going smoking a cigar, and everybody was choking. And we, this goes on for like three hours, and I thought, what am I doing here? This is not, I wrote this stuff, but what am I doing here? And Copeland was, he asked me, he asked me um, when he started filming, he said, what do, you, what, do you want to, what do you want to see out of the film? And I said, okay, two things. I, I would, <laughs> after the firm, I would love it if you would stick to the story, you know? <laughs> The basic plot without major changes, and I, I, and I, I want a PG-13 rating. The book is PG-13. All my books are PG-13 rating. It means a lot to me, you know, stick with PG-13. He said, done. I asked I ask all of them to do, to do that, and he's the only one that guaranteed it. And we, 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 he filmed the movie. I was here way too much. He took the movie back to his winery in, uh, in California where he has a, 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 a workshop, editing room, film room. He worked on it for months and months. He's so obsessive. And he said, uh, he finally called. And he said, okay, the movie's finished. Rainmaker. Uh, I want you to come see it. Well, I said, sure, but we have Little League Baseball this weekend. And he said, uh, when can you be here? And we flew out um, from Virginia after a Little League Baseball game on Friday night, flew all night, got there. And what he does in his, in his screening room, he likes to invite his neighbors to come watch the movie for the first time. So George Lucas comes over <laughs> with his kids, and we're in this office in this big room. We, we watched The Rainmaker for the first time. And uh, I thought it was great. And so the movie ends, and it, it turns on the lights, and we go around the room, and everybody comments on it. And Lucas had a couple of great things to say about it and changed this. I didn't get that, whatever. He's a Star Wars guy. What are you talking about? What does he know about the law? And so and <laughs> Coppola had some changes, and it was a great... Uh, he went back, edited some more, edited some more. Finally, they had to pull the movie away from him to get it released one week before Titanic. And it just tanked. I mean, it went nowhere. And, uh, but I thought it was by far the best adaptation of any of my stuff. And, and um, it took about 14 years for it to, uh, to get in the black. I get a check every six months for about $37 for the rainbow. <laughs> That's, that's how much money the movies make for. I remember uh, you used to bristle when someone would come up to you in one of our lines at the bookstore and say, you wrote that movie, The Client. 
Well, my favorite is, uh, hey man, I don't know about your books, but I love your movies. <laughs> and I just smile and keep going, you know, at least they know something. How about so, a... Thank ahead. you for the $37. <laughs> yeah, at the, at, the, at the most. How about a question from the floor? Question is, once you finish a book for the first time, how do you get it published? Do you go through an agent? Do you go through an editor? What are your next few steps? You want to help us out? Certainly helps to have a good agent. Uh, agents, you know, kind of like filters, and they just uh, help you uh, pitch the thing. They help you uh, distill and sharpen and refine the book. Um, editors, you know, get bombarded with so many manuscripts that they cannot, and they just simply don't have the time to, to field stuff that comes in over the transom. So they rely on agents to, um, to uh, winnow that uh, huge number of manuscripts. That's one thing, I think. Um, and listening, you know, to the kind of critique that you get from an agent or f from, if you can, f you know, there are now a lot of people who will edit your book for freelance, you know, kind of freelance editors. Because um, a lot of times professional editors simply don't have the time to do a whole lot of editing. Um, even after the book has is, uh, is actually been, uh, you know, uh, signed up, uh, it's like, it's really, they're very, very busy. And the line by line, that close line by line editing is a really rare thing. It can be very difficult to find an editor yeah. who has the time to do it, so. Who was your first rejection? I met your first boss tonight, the first guy who paid yeah, you for a story. Yeah. Memphis first, Magazine, right? Memphis Magazine. Ken Neal, I think he's here tonight. He really did. Ticket, did he show up? He said he was coming. Yeah, there, there he is. Back. He's back on the background. Ken Neal, yes. I didn't think uh, he'd show up after we had met him for drinks. Uh, he, he published my first story. And, it, you know, it's really important. It's so important to have people um, that, you know, take a chance on you. Um, and whether it's at a local newspaper or a local magazine or a book publisher. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's a risky thing to uh, recognize a new person, a young person who, who's never published before. So uh, I think that's really important. I think it's also really important to have people that you aspire to, you know, that you, um, you view as a model for the kind of writing that you're doing. For me, that writer probably was, I didn't know it at the time, but he was the first writer that I ever met and he lived about 100 yards from here. And his name was Shelby Foote. Uh, and his son, yeah, yeah, let's hear it for Shelby Foote. Um, here he was, a narrative historian, doing, do, doing this thing of narrative history with, before it really had much of a name for itself. And he was great at it. And of course, he had this amazing beard and uh, this amazing accent. And his son, Huggy, and I were good friends. And we were in a rock band together. And uh, we pretty much did everything we could to prevent Shelby from finishing his trilogy of the Civil War, you know, cranking up the Hendrix and, uh, you know, Pink Floyd. I remember a lot of Pink Floyd. Um, and there may or may not have been smoke in the room. And he would come up and uh, Shelby would say, you know, Huggy, turn that racket down. I'm working on Appomattox. <laughs> you know. But to have somebody like that, you know, that you aspire to, and you realize later on, I began to realize what he was doing. You know, he was sitting in that room for 25 years, writing this 3,000-page trilogy of the Civil War. The discipline that that took, and the uh, and the uh, the idea of just following it through to, to the bitter end, uh, I think gave me some real powerful ideas about what narrative history could be. Did you actually see him work? A couple of times we'd go back there and watch him. Uh, he wrote in longhand, longhand, yep. in, in in big thick notebooks that he bound, right? Yeah, 
So every every book was bound with his original handwriting. Yeah, yeah, and he wrote 500 words a day in in this sort of Cyrillic script that was kind of odd looking to read, and uh, yeah, would, would, yeah he, but, would he edit on the page? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, on the, I mean, we scr yeah, yeah. scratch through stuff and edit right there on the yeah, page. Yeah, yeah. But you know, when my first book came out, uh, Ghost Soldiers, which was a World War II story, uh, he was a World War II vet, and I knew him, and uh, you know, I thought maybe I'd get him to write a little blurb for me. He should have. I'm sure uh, he did, right? Uh, so I wrote him and said, would you please consider, you know, I didn't expect anything. He wrote me this like five or six or seven page handwritten letter, beautiful letter, explaining all the various reasons why he could not, <laughs> I could not possibly blurb your book because uh, I've, Hampton, I've only written three blurbs in my entire career. One was for the young Cormac McCarthy. One was for my dear friend, Walker Pussy. And I can't remember what the other one was, but you know, I was like, I get it, you know, I'm not in their league. Uh, but the time he took to write that beautiful letter, he could have blurred. could have written 10 blurbs. I know, yeah. I know. Would have been great too, but, but he was a dear guy and a very interesting, somewhat eccentric, but wonderful kind of, and it's just so important to have these sorts of people that you look up to and uh, figure out how am I different from them, but you know, how can I kind of carry on that tradition in some way? And when A Time to Kill was published in 1989, uh, I was in the state legislature in Mississippi, and a buddy of mine from Oxford was close friends with Willie Morse. And Willie was living in Oxford, he was the writer in residence at Ole Miss, and I was young and stupid and naive. Yeah. And so uh, I had it in my mind, I needed Willie Morse to blurb my brilliant first novel. And so my, my friend, uh, we kind of had a dinner date one night, and Willie was there with some other guys, and Willie knew why I was stalking him. And um, finally, late in the evening, and it was a very late evening, Willie said, uh, boy, uh, I'm going to tell you what Sherwood Anderson told William Faulkner. I'll blurb your damn book if I don't have to read it. And then he said, I said, okay. And he said, um, he said, in fact, I'm going one step further. You write the blurb and I'll sign it. <laughs> and uh, he was trying to write and he was drinking heavily and he, you know, he was, his life was un, uh, undisciplined. And so I left there that night and never thought about going back. So when A Time to Kill came out, it had... Uh, a powerful courtroom drama, Willie Morris. A stunning debut by Willie Morris. You know, blah, 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 Willie Morris. All these quotes all over the place. And Willie never saw him. He didn't, he, he didn't read the book. You know, he just wanted some credit. Yes, ma'am. Who do you read for pleasure? Besides, besides each other. Okay, nobody else on stage. Yeah. Who, who do you read? Besides John Grisham, I read... Um, uh, no, you know, honestly, I got to say this. Um, I don't read much for pleasure anymore. Um, and this is, this is because I, like when I'm working on a book especially, I'm reading so much stuff that I would dare you to read. It's just, you know, like war narratives and after action reports and lots of documents. And, you know, your eyes are shot by the end of the day. And, and you know, all you really want to watch is, you know, SpongeBob SquarePants or something. Um, but it, when I read that stuff, I'm not reading for you know, necessarily in a linear fashion, I'm mining, I call it mining. I'm, I'm looking for that one little nugget, that one little detail that maybe is on page 300 of a self-published uh, novel by a guy who was at this battle. 
And so that's the, the way I've sort of trained myself to read. And so when I read for pleasure, it's really hard for me to, um, uh, you know, get out of that habit of looking for the nugget, looking for the little, the little thing that I'm trying to mine um, and just lay back and just let the, a great novel uh, flow all over me. The great, last great novel I read was um, All the Light We Cannot See by Tony Dore, and, um, who I got to meet, and uh, he's a really great ma- guy. Success could not have happened a better person. Uh, wonderful novel, but uh, I don't know. What about you? Enjoyed that book uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I enjoy, uh, in the last year, I've enjoyed um, Coast and Whitehead, uh, the Underground Railroad. Um, uh, I just finished The Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. And met him Tuesday night. We did something similar Tuesday night in Brooklyn, and he was a real, a real treat to be with. Uh, on the nightstand, I've got uh, John Le Carre's latest book, The Legacy of Spies. Under that, I've got uh, Scott Turow, who's a buddy, and I always enjoy his books. His book is Testimony. Came out a couple months ago, and I haven't, uh, haven't got there yet. I'm halfway through um, James Lee Burke, who's a real favorite. His, his, uh, the advanced reading copy for his next book is uh, Robeshaw. I'm about halfway through that, and I'll get back to it soon. So those are, there's there's no rhyme or reason. I tend to read less when I'm writing, uh, because I do write, I have to read a lot of technical stuff, legal stuff, you know, researching um, when I have to research. Um, But also, when I catch myself when I'm writing, we all want to read great books by great writers. You know, who wants to read a bad book? So we try to read the good stuff. And if I'm reading a really great book while I'm writing, I'll catch myself doing things that I wouldn't normally do. I mean, mimicking them in, sort in of, subconsciously? Yeah, yeah. yeah, you're using words that I've never seen before, but I stole from somebody else. Or, or, or maybe my sentences get longer or shorter or whatever. You know, the dialogue is, yeah, I catch myself say, why are you doing this? Well, you're doing it because you're, you're reading Sophie's Choice, you know, or see, something, <laughs> The Grapes of Wrath or some great book that I enjoy. So... I tend to stay away from fiction while I'm writing fiction and read the technical stuff. Or the, there's a, there are a lot of great nonfiction books. Uh, they're more technical and ac- academic about problems that I write about. So, Corey, what do you write? I'm sorry, what? What do you, write, what do you read? Co- co- one time Corey said, uh, my, next year's my 50th birthday, and I've been saving up for years to read Crime and Punishment. <laughs> and I said, seriously, Corey, that's the way you celebrate your 50th birthday? <laughs> Did you read it? Of course. <laughs> of course. What I'm reading right now is Thomas Mallon's novel, Watergate. Anybody? No? Thomas Mallon? It's good. Although he's a Republican. <laughs> Wait, McCoy, I'm sure there's some Republicans here tonight. Well, you Appar- don't, you don't to... Perhaps. And there are, and, and he's, I mean, he's an outspoken Republican, and... Uh, I wanted to, the, the Watergate story fascinates me. And he's telling it, rather than the movie, which tells it from the reporter's point of view, he's telling it from Dick Nixon and Pat Nixon and John Mitchell and, and that point of view. So it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And, and he obviously knows his stuff. Sounds riveting. It is. <laughs> I'm just joking, okay? He has a very eclectic reading taste, as I've learned many years yeah. ago. He reads books I've never heard of. Question. Yes, ma'am. Do I ever start a book and it doesn't work and I throw it out? Um, no, no. By the time I start the book, I have 
outlined the book, and one of my rules of writing popular fiction is you never write the first scene until you know the last scene. And when you know the last scene, it's hard to get lost. But to get to that point, you have to, you have to really think about the whole story and plot, and, and, it, and the outline takes a lot of work. Hey, listen, y'all, we're out of time. Thank y'all for coming. Thank you, Hampton. Thanks to CBU. Thank y'all for being here. Good night. See you. Thanks to my guest, Hampton Sides, Corey Messler, and Matt Crow. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe and listen to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. We'll see you down the road with Book Tour.